Hey, good morning. Thank you uh, um, for being here and for that time of worship. Um, as you can see, we're starting a new series today called Sins and Stones. It is based on the life of David or uh, King David, most of us would say. Uh, David is certainly one of the most well-known characters in the Bible besides Jesus. Uh, there is more written about David than anyone else. Uh, nearly 70 chapters in the Old Testament have some reference to David. Uh, and 60 verses in the New Testament talk about David. Um, even if you did not grow up in church, you were likely very familiar uh, with this man named David. In fact, my guess would be, besides Jesus, uh, that this is the, the number one character that we think of from the Bible. If we were to play um, Family Feud this morning, which we're not, but it would be a lot of fun if we did. If we were to play Family Feud and I were to say to you, hey, a hundred people were surveyed and they were asked to name a character from the Bible, well, certainly Jesus would be the number one answer, but likely right behind that would be David, maybe Moses, but they would be neck and neck. David is someone who is very familiar to us. Uh, and if you grew up in church, you heard the stories of the heroics of David. And even if you did not grow up in church, you've likely heard the most famous story of David battling Goliath, uh, th this giant of a man who was part of the Philistine army. Uh, the Philistines were the arch rivals of Israel. And in a famous battle, the soldiers of Israel stood on one hill and the Philistines stood on the other. And in the valley in between these two armies stood this giant of a man named Goliath who sat there every day and taunted the Israelites and none of them would come and fight this man. This giant who had slayed so many people, he had a trail of blood. This individual who was this great soldier and no one would fight against Goliath except for one individual, young David. Armed with just a slingshot and a stone, he walked into the valley and planted that rock right into the forehead of Goliath. I mean, it's one of these stories that we love. It's one that we read about in Sunday school. We see the posters of little David beating the giant Goliath. And so we remember David fondly for his heroics, this giant slayer who was just this larger-than-life figure. There's other stories as well where David was humble at just the right times and strong at just the right times and follow the Lord with all of his heart. And we read those stories and we view David as a hero. But he appeals to us as well, not just because he was a hero, but as well because of his imperfections. David was a guy who, like us, messed up. David was a guy who had his share of sins, and some of his sins were so bad that he did incredible damage to his family and just about destroyed his kingdom. And while your sins may not have gone to the depths of David's, I think all of us can identify with an individual who at times did everything right and at times did everything wrong. And exactly because of those reasons... David is a guy that we can read about his life and say, oh, oh yeah, I've been there. I get that. When he does well, hey, there are times that I've done well. And then when he failed, we can go, oh, that's me. I've done that as well. 
So this morning, we're starting off uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where David is introduced to us. If you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, 1 Samuel comes right after the little book of Ruth, uh, which comes right after Judges. So if you find Judges, just go right a little bit and you'll find 1 Samuel. Uh, This takes place in the life of the prophet Samuel or the priest Samuel when he is at an older age. Uh, Samuel at this point had been for decades uh, leading the nation of Israel as a priest. Some 25 years before the events that we'll read about today, uh, the nation of Israel came to Samuel and they said, we want a king. And Samuel said, no, you don't. And he pushed back and he warned the people and he said, you do not want a king. And he warned them and said, look, if you get a king... If you you appoint someone as king, you need to understand this. That king will take your land. That king will tax you. That king will take your food. That king will take your daughters into his castle, both as his wives and his mistresses and to, to serve in his castle. And that king will take your sons to serve in his army. And that king will send those sons off to war and they will die in battle. You do not want a king. God is to be your king. Follow God and follow God alone. But the people pushed back and they said, all the nations around us have kings. Everyone else is doing it, Samuel. We want a king as well. We want someone that we can point to and say, look, look at that individual. That man is our king. And so Samuel gave in. And Samuel anointed a man named Saul to be king. And Saul, according to the Bible, looked every bit the part. He talked like a king. He walked like a king. He acted like a king. He looked regal in everything that he did. He was the picture of a king. And Saul started off well. He followed the Lord. He did what the Lord would have him to do. But after some time, Saul's heart drifted away from God, and he quit following the Lord, and he quit making the decisions that the Lord would have him to make. And so years go by, and that's where our story picks up. This is 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 1, and here is what we read. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So stop there. Saul's heart drifted so far from the Lord that God finally said, that's enough. I'm done with you as king. No longer will you or your family line rule over Israel. And so God speaks to Samuel and says to Samuel, it's time for you to go and anoint someone else as king. And verse 1 tells us that Samuel here was in mourning, or we might say that Samuel was moping. Samuel was upset because Saul had been Samuel's choice. Uh, Saul was Samuel's guy. He was the one that he went and anointed as the first king over Israel. And yet Samuel had to sit and watch as Saul drifted away from the Lord. And even though Saul knew, uh, Samuel knew that Saul was no longer God's choice to be king, 
the pain of that reality was still with Samuel. So God has to come to Samuel and say, look, I know you're upset, but it's time for you to move on. It's time for you to go and anoint someone else. Get up and go to the house of Jesse. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Then verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Okay, so at this point, Samuel was understandably nervous about going to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. I mean, Samuel was thinking, look, at best, if Saul hears about this, he will have me arrested, put in prison, so I can't go and anoint someone out of his family line to be king. At worst, Saul will hear about this, Saul will have me killed, so I can't go and anoint someone to be the next king. Samuel was obviously upset, and so God says, okay, here is your cover story. I'm sending you to Bethlehem, and you say to Saul, if asked, I'm going there to make a sacrifice and to worship, which was not a lie. That's what, that's what he did when he got to Bethlehem. It was not a lie. It was just while he was there, he was also anointing someone to be king. Okay, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, did you come in peace? Now, it's not exactly clear why the elders trembled and asked Samuel, did you come in peace? It may have been because Samuel was the priest over Israel and Samuel coming to their small little town of Bethlehem may have been because someone in that area had sinned greatly and God was bringing judgment to Bethlehem and they trembled at that thought. More likely, though, their fear was because they knew there was this growing rift between Samuel and Saul over the sin of Saul. And they were worried that Samuel coming to their town would invite the anger of Saul. So they say, Samuel, you come in peace or are you bringing trouble to our town? Here's his answer, verse 5. Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Okay, stop there. We aren't given every detail of exactly how Samuel saw Eliab, the son of Jesse, first. Based on what we will read later, it's likely that Samuel here said to Jesse, I've come to your house to anoint the next king of Israel. One of your sons will be the next king. And then Jesse somehow brought his sons in and paraded them before Samuel. And we assume that Eliab was the oldest, and so Eliab was first. And as he walks in front of Samuel, Samuel says, this has got to be it. 
just like a quarter of a century earlier when he anointed Saul as king, Samuel here says this guy looks every bit the part of a king. And Samuel understandably thought, hey, if he looks like a king, if he talks like a king, if he acts like a king, then surely this must be the guy that the Lord wants to be the next king over Israel. However, the Lord had a different plan in mind. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If you're not someone who has a problem with writing in your Bible, here's what I recommend. Underline this verse and put a star beside it. This, and no pun intended here, is the heart of this passage. This is the biggest truth that we gain from this particular story, that there is often a divergence between the way that we view things and the way that God views things. And more specifically, what the Lord points out here to Samuel is we look at outward appearances, we look at the shell, we look at the cover of the book, And the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at character. God looks at the inside of the book. And we're going to come back to this in just a minute, but kind of mark a place there. Verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadad and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? Okay, again, stop there. At this point, Jesse is ready to just throw up his hands and thinking to himself that maybe the Lord has sent him on some kind of fool's errand, that perhaps this is some sort of test because son after son after son passes by and each time the Lord whispers into the ear of Samuel, this is not it. He is not the one. This is not the next king over Israel. And son after son, all seven pass by And none are it. And finally, Samuel says to Jesse, is this it? Are there any other sons that you have? None of these are the one. Are there any other sons? Here's Jesse's response. Verse, Verse 11. There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So David here, very young, 
seemingly just an afterthought for his father. So much so that he was out in the field tending sheep, the most unlikely candidate to be king. Now, the scripture does say that he was a handsome little fellow as well. I mean, here was a guy that the Bible says that he was very good looking. Some translations say that he was ruddy, um, that he had a fine appearance. Some say beautiful eyes. Some translations just say handsome features. Basically, we would say this was a guy who was young, he was small, he was scrappy, he was good looking, but he was not the candidate to be king. Way too young, way too inexperienced. For Jesse, he was just this afterthought. Don't bring him in. Surely there's no way that the Lord wants this young man to be king. Yet, David was exactly who God had in mind. Why? Because man looks at the outward appearances, but God saw the heart of David. God saw the character of David. God saw David's love for the Lord. And even though God could see down through time that David would later in his life make some horrible decisions, he could also see that David was a man after his own heart. And throughout his life, even when when he failed, even when he sinned um, majorly against the Lord, even when he made decisions that were not in line with the Lord's decision, his heart reflected the very heart of God. So Samuel obeyed the Lord, and he anointed the youngest son of Jesse as the next king over Israel. And the text says that he anointed David in front of his brothers to be the next king over Israel. Anyone here in here have siblings? What are sibling rivalries like? Especially if they're the same sex. If you're a guy who has a brother, several brothers, girls, sisters... Sibling rivalries are always a lot of fun, so I'm sure those seven brothers looked at their younger brother David being anointed as the next king, and they all said, we are so happy for you, David, way to go, that is great. Don't you know they put on the fake smiles and they seethed with jealousy as they watched and thought, that should be me. Oh, David, great for you, I can't believe it, the little runt, they chose the little runt. So Samuel, it says, left and went to Ramah probably because he was worried these brothers are going to come after him for not anointing them to be the next king. Okay, so how does this passage apply to us? Here's what we see in this passage, and here is what we see every single day of our lives. There is this distinct contrast between how the world would have us to operate and how the Lord would have you to live. And King Saul here is the picture of operating in the way the world says that you should live. Hey, you choose the best life that fits for you and what you think will make you happy and you go that route and you make the decisions that you need to make out of your own wisdom and you choose your own path and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you make your own way and it doesn't matter what the Lord or anyone else thinks, you do what you think is best. And for Saul, and we will see this next week, 
his decisions to, to run uh, down the path of life outside of God's will eventually caught up with him big time. Not only was he rejected by God as king, but Saul suffered from depression and anxiety and his life ultimately crumbled down around him to the point that eventually he asked his secret service agent to take a sword and run it through him. Saul's life crashed and burned when he decided that he was going to operate outside of the will of God. David, on the other hand, had a much different experience. And even through his failings, even when David fell uh, face first onto the ground in life, even when he blew it, he still returned to the Lord. David repented and he turned back to the Lord. Even when he chose, uh, made decisions outside of the will of God, he eventually got it, uh, his life back onto the right path. The application for us is clear. Which direction will you choose in life? Will you choose the path that is outside of God's will? Will you say, I'm going to go in my own direction. I'm going to do what I want to do. Or will you say, I'm going to choose what God wants for me? Now, before you answer that question, here's how most of us will answer that. Sunday morning in church, we will say, oh, yeah, I choose God. Absolutely. Right here on, on Sunday morning, you will say, yes, God is most important. Following God's will in my life is absolutely what I am committed to doing. It's on Monday morning. It's on Tuesday night. It's in the 1,000 decisions that you make where the rubber really hits the road. And you have to ask yourself, am I really committed to following what God wants me to do in life? So, while I can't give you every detail of what that looks like in your life, let me give you three broad principles to apply in this area. Uh, this is on your message map if you've got one with you. Here's what a rightly focused life looks like. Number one, a rightly focused life trusts in the Lord. Uh, the reason that Saul was rejected by God was not because of some awful sin. It was because Saul quit trusting in God. Saul began to trust in his own wisdom and the, the ways that he thought life would work out best. And when he abandoned God, God finally said, that's it. And more specifically, in this passage, not only does Saul struggle with that, but we see the priest of God, this man Samuel, struggling with trusting in God. Uh, Samuel was called by God to go to Bethlehem to anoint the next king of Israel. And Samuel says to God, no way, God. If I go to Bethlehem, Saul is going to kill me. Now stop there for just a moment. Here's what you and I think. On this side of this story, you and I read a story like this and we think, Samuel, God said to go. You heard the voice of God saying to go. Why would you be scared? If God says to do it, Surely that's the best thing to do, right? Why, why would you ever be afraid, Samuel? And yet we do exactly the same thing. Uh, unlike Samuel, we have the benefit of the Word of God that we can read. And 99% of God's will for your life and my life is found right here in His Word. 
And we can read God's Word, and we can know exactly what it is that we are supposed to do, and then we say, yeah, but. Ah, man, I'm scared. If I follow that, what will happen? Now, I know some of you are going to get upset about this, and I understand, because we just spent three weeks talking about tithing. So you think I've got this dead horse up here, and I'm just whacking this sucker, but, but this is an area where we struggle, right? God says very clearly, I want you to tithe. And tithe means 10%. So you, I'm going to give you 100% of what you've got. You keep 90%. You give 10% back to me. And, and, and we read that and we say, I know that's what God wants me to do. But I'm scared. Just like Samuel, I'm scared. What will happen? If I make this decision and I follow God's will financially, what will happen to me? Will I have enough to provide for my family? And just like Samuel, we have this great fear that if we follow exactly what God wants us to do, that God's not going to care for us, that he will not take care for us. We struggle in trusting the Lord. Now, here's, here's what I've learned in, in my years on this earth. If God says to do something, the best thing I can do is that, exactly what God has told me to do. There's a couple of reasons. One is I can analyze every detail of a situation in making a decision. I can, I can look at, at every factor, every variable, everything I know about the situation, but I am not omniscient. I am not all-knowing. I cannot know every single detail. I can think I do. But I can't know what's in someone's heart. I can't know what is not able to be known for some reason. And so I may look at a situation and say, well, I I can't do what God wants me to do, but I don't know every detail. God does. Secondly, let's just say for a second that I could know every detail. So I'm trying to make a decision, and I know every single detail. I know as much about that present situation as God knows about it. Let's just say that I could. Here's what I can't know is the future. And God knows the future and what will change and what variables tomorrow will change and what factors will change and what this person will do. And so even if I was able to know everything about the situation, I can't know the future. So what's the best thing that I can do? Follow God, right? God who knows everything about the situation and everything about the future. As I follow him and trust in him, God will have my best interest in his glory in mind every single time. The best thing I can do for a rightly focused life is to trust in the Lord. Okay, so number one is trust. Number two, a rightly focused life thinks like the Lord. This is the heart of the story. This is the part I had you underline earlier. This is the point that stands out the most to us. Even godly Samuel, this priest of the Lord, this man who was so faithful in following God, looked at the external factors and said, well, this has got to be God's man. This has to be the next king. He looks good. He looks kingly. Here is a guy who will appear on the next issue of Us Weekly with all the photographs of his family and the royal family and him 
meeting with Prince William and talking about all the kingly things that they talk about as royalty, here is a guy who fits the part. He will look great in all of the pictures. Even to Samuel, when he looked at Eliab, he said, this has got to be the guy. However, what's very clear in the story is the Lord looks at much deeper qualities than height and broad shoulders and hair color and six-pack abs and all of those things that we are so enamored by. Eliab may have been Samuel's choice, but Eliab was clearly not God's man. And here's, here's our problem. Throughout history, man has been fascinated with the externals, but going back 15 years or so, all of that has just gone on steroids. And it's because of this thing called social media. We have become fascinated and obsessed with the superficial. If someone has the right look, and if they can take selfie after selfie after selfie, and if they've got the right program to doctor that picture, and the Instagram account to post that picture on, they will get all kinds of praise and comments based only on how they look. We as a culture will choose Eliab every single time. And here's what we'll say. David, if you're out in the field watching sheep and you're not bothering to take the time to snap some selfies of you out in the field watching the sheep, Selfies, you know, honestly, David, with your shirt off, in the sun, sheep in the background with some kind of cool post like, you know, getting some sun while earning a paycheck, watching the sheep. If you're not going to take the time to do that and put it on Instagram so that we can look at it and we can talk about it and we can put our own comments on that, then David, you're not worth our time. You're not worth us bothering with you. Every single time, we will choose Eliab. I want you to think about just a couple of things. One, think about how much time as a culture and how much time you individually spend following people rather than following God. And I mean that literally. How often do you follow people on Instagram or Facebook or whatever the latest social media app is, how much time do you follow? How many, how many people do you follow? How many celebrities do you follow? And how much time do you spend scrolling versus reading God's Word? Think about what that effect that has on your life. Think about what that does to your mentality. Think about how your worldview is shaped by what Instagram says that it should be shaped by. Just think about all that's being done to you. Here's the second thing to think about. In Greek mythology, Narcissus was this character 
who was this soldier who was this um, who, who had gone into battle and one day he is walking by this pond of water and he stops to get a drink and as he kneels down to get a drink of water he sees his own reflection in the water and he falls in love with himself and he stares and stares at his own reflection unable to look away and there are different legends but in one of the legends he eventually kills himself because he realizes that he cannot have the object of his affection Because the object of his affection, the person that he has fallen in love with, is himself. And he cannot have a relationship with this reflection in the water. It's where we get the term narcissist. Those individuals who post selfie after selfie after selfie on Instagram, I'm sorry to say they're narcissistic. And we're following a bunch of narcissists? And it's this self-destructive behavior that we are participating in. And it's causing us not, not to think like the Lord, but to think like the world. So when we face decisions, when there's some problem, when there's some situation, emotionally, mentally, we're addressing that as the world would have us to address it. And again, I want you to come back. It's not next week. We're going to cover it in a couple of weeks. Come back when we look at how that uh, mentality affected the life of Saul. And if you're struggling with depression and anxiety, you're going to want to hear that message. Because ultimately, thinking like the world will lead you down that path. Finally, here's the last thing. Uh, A rightly focused life trusts in the Lord, thinks like the Lord, and then stays with the Lord. And here's what I mean by that. We're going to see more about this as we go through the series. But today, 1 Samuel 16, the only reason this chapter happened is because Saul turned his back on God. 1 Samuel 16 would not have been a passage in the Bible if Saul had stayed with the Lord. 1 Samuel 16 never would have happened if Saul's heart for God had stayed true. Here's what this means for us. If you have made a decision to follow Christ, uh, you made that at some point in your past, and when you did that, you went from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. Uh, You went from being someone um, without a relationship with God, an enemy of God, to a friend of God. Um, that decision that you made a year ago or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, that changed your life. However, that is also a decision that you have to make every single day. Today, I will choose to follow the Lord. I chose to follow God, but today I will choose to follow God. I will choose to focus on what he has for my life. At some point in the life of Saul, He quit making that decision. And he woke up every day and said, Today I will follow Saul instead of following the Lord. Now, let me be very clear. I, as the pastor of this church and the church itself, believes that once you become a follower of Christ, you can never lose your salvation. We strongly believe that. You cannot go from being born again to unborn again any more than you can be born as a person, and then unborn as a person. You you can say, I wish I was never born, but unless you're in some Disney movie where 
twinkle dust suddenly makes you never born and you get to see what life would be like if you were never born, that's just not reality. And spiritually, it's not reality as well. However, what we do see happening is that we can drift in our relationship with the Lord. And we can drift to the point that we begin to make destructive decisions in life. And our hearts move so far away from God that maybe we're saved, maybe we have our salvation, but our lives look nothing like a follower of Christ. And everything begins to unravel. And we begin to destroy our lives because we're trusting in us and following our own will and our own desires rather than following the Lord. Many of you know the name Jonathan Edwards. Um, he was a pastor in the 1700s who um, was the point person for the first great awakening, this revival that took place all across our nation. At a very young age, at 19 years old, Jonathan Edwards sat down and he began to write out resolutions for his life, what his life would look like, how he would live his life. He ended up eventually writing 70 resolutions, and every um, week he would sit down and he would read through those 70 resolutions to make sure that he was living his life the way that he had resolved to live his life. Uh, the language is a little bit archaic, but here are just a few of the things that he wrote. Uh, the first one, part of it is resolved to do whatever I think to be most to God's glory. That was number one, and he would read that every week. Uh, number 14 was resolved to never do anything out of revenge. I'd say that's a good one and a good one to read every week. Number 17, resolved that I will live as I shall wish I'd lived when I come to die, that on the last day of my life, I will look back and say, I have no regrets. How can you do that? How can I do that? It is by saying in my life, hey, I, I might not be perfect. I will fail, I will fall, but I'm going to always return to the Lord. And my life is going to be focused on the Lord and not on me and my decisions and what I want to do.